Hi, I'm Andy McLenahan, and in this episode of the podcast, my guests and I discuss issues which may cause distress, including suicide and self-harm, and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national, and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan, and I'm really pleased you've joined us to listen to this episode of the podcast, where my guests and I will discuss the Serenity Integrated Mentoring Model, or SIM for short. While SIM has been described by its proponents as an innovative mental health workforce transformation model that brings together the police and community mental health services to better support what they term as high-intensity users of Section 136 of the Mental Health Act and public services, The rollout of the model has caused deep concern within the social work profession and beyond. Warnings have been raised that the model is based on coercion and denial of potentially life-saving support and is causing some service users to live in fear of arrest or prosecution when they are in mental health crisis. With me today to discuss the SIM model are Hattie and Hope from the Stop SIM Coalition, Mary Buckman, co-chair of the Baswa England Mental Health Group, and Dr Alex Thompson, Vice Chair of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, Faculty of Liaison Psychiatry. Welcome everyone. How are you doing? We'll start with Mary. How are you feeling, Mary? Hi, Andy. Good, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm going to go around my screen. Alex, how are you keeping? Hi, doing well. Thanks very much for inviting me. Good stuff. And Hattie, are you well? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. Thanks. Good, good, good. And Hope. Yeah, not bad. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us to be part of the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate everyone's time. Thanks so much. Now, we're talking about the SIM model. I want to start us off, um, uh, Hattie and Hope, if you could talk us through some of the aspects of the SIM model. You're from a coalition of service users that are campaigning, as I understand, to see the rollout of the SIM model stopped. I'm aware that Baswa has put out a statement um, voicing its concerns about the SIM model, and so has the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which we'll, we'll, we'll get on to in some detail. But I imagine for a lot of listeners, this is a totally new topic. So if you could start us off, could you tell us a bit about what the SIM model is and who it's designed for? Um, so from from the from what we understand, um, SIM is um, it's an approach to mental health care, um, particularly crisis care. Though it it tends to be extended beyond um, circumstances of mental health crisis crises, um, and it's it's designed ostensibly for people who um, are deemed to use crisis or emergency services often, um, but this is not consistent. So. Um, in terms of what's classified as often it could i mean in my opinion some some of the evidence that we've come across um suggests that um the the service users that it targets actually aren't using emergency services that often so it it can be inconsistent and it's very subjective um as a definition um from what we understand um it was piloted in 2013 um but it was widely rolled out after receiving um several awards and and funding um, from um, from NHSE and and the um, Academic Health Science Network um, in England from um, 2018 to 2021, um, 
and I think um, we've established that it's it's kind of operating in, or or it was, um, when it came to our attention last year, um, in 23 out of 57 um, local trusts um, in England. Um, and um, basically, um, we we from what we understand, um, a police officer will will work alongside clinicians, and um, the approach that it it kind of um, is supposed to enforce is. Um, so the word coercive has, is used in the um, SIM promotional materials, um, the word consequences, um, the idea that a police officer's presence and, and kind of uh, involvement will, be, will work as a kind of um, coercive deterrent to further use of emergency services. Um, and there's also sort of a note in um, in the business plan, um, which, which was online last year, um, which suggests that... Um, the, the, the SIM model would give uh, medical professionals in uh, the emergency um, emergency departments in hospitals um, to not give other kinds of emergency treatment, such as x-rays um, and things to do with physical health as well. Um, and um, we, we've sort of, um, from, from what we as a coalition have experienced, um, we think it's probably sort of targeting um, actively around sort of... Um, 10 to 20 people per local trust. Um, but I think it's important to say that it's affected the wider community of service users um, as well. So kind of, you know, um, the threat of SIM, the idea that um, it could be extended to any service user at any time. Um, it, it, we've, we've received sort of um, reports that um, people have been put under SIM without warning or consent um, or discussion as well. So it, it has affected sort of um, a, a much wider community in that way as well. Thank you, Hope. I can see a lot of nodding going on. But um, Harry, if I can just come to you, the, the thought that somebody could be put under SIM without their consent and also the thought that you could have a, a policing response to a mental health crisis when you are um, suffering, you know, perhaps acute anxiety, that, that that's only going to make matters worse. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, you know, they describe it themselves as a coercive approach. There's no care or compassion within the model at all, which is what people need and deserve in these situations. So the people who are targeted by SIM are people who are likely to have experienced quite a lot of trauma, quite a lot of difficulties in their lives. And the approach that the SIM model takes through this kind of, um, these threats and this coercion is likely to replicate the kind of, um, the kind of traumatic experiences people have already been through. Um, one of just thinking from what Hope said, um, the kind of two key parts of the SIM model relate to um, kind of taking legal actions against people who are in crisis and um, sort of advocating for withholding care that is potentially life-saving from people. Um, and one of the things that struck us from the very beginning was that whilst we were shocked and horrified to hear about the SIM model, it didn't surprise us because I think the SIM model is something that legitimises what is already happening across mental health services and that people are being um, criminalised for being in distress. Legal actions are being taken against people. People are being given um, ASBOs and things for suicide attempts. 
um, and people are being refused treatments that are, you know, life-saving already. So SIM is kind of a model that simply legitimizes that. Um, but these things are really widely prevalent. And I think the SIM is emblematic of wider issues um, across mental health services in general. Thank you so much, Harry. Um, Alex, could you expand a bit on that point, the wider issues that Harry's described? Yeah, so so I'd agree. And I think that the, the concerns about the, the SIM model represents um, concerns about some wider practices within mental health services, which have been occurring before SIM um, was was ever developed, you know, which occur outside SIM in both Scotland and England and maybe you know, continuing and do warrant further scrutiny and review. And the, the, the biggest concern is the use of uh, criminal sanctions, which would include uh, prosecution, antisocial behaviour orders, community protection notices and criminal behaviour orders as a response to self-harm, suicidality or calling for help with mental health concerns. Um, the, you know, the, the end result of those issues is, is potentially a, a person could be imprisoned for, um, attempting suicide or for calling for help while suicidal. Alex, sorry, just to break in, but the, the point you're saying that, you know, people will be criminalized for even calling out for help. I mean, surely if that is the case, if people feel that they can't call out for help, the, the very sad outcome of that will be that more people will ultimately die as a result of suicide. It's certainly a possibility. Um, I know that the the messaging is and should be that people should ask for help and uh, you know receive help before anything happens. If if they are feeling so bad as to you know, con- consider ending their life. Now, the historically there has been a theory of that um, punishment or uh, you know criminalisation would be an effective deterrent to uh, reduce the likelihood of self-harm or reduce the likelihood of suicide. Um, The international consensus now is that it is not effective. And in fact, the opposite is true. As you say, uh, having uh, criminal sanctions for suicidality, suicide attempts or self-harm, or having other forms of punishment simply deters people from asking for help which does make the likelihood of self-harm and suicide uh, much greater. Yeah, very much so, if I can come in there as well, um, Andy. I I think we almost need to take a step back and and look at this model very much as dealing with something that is perceived in some quarters to be a problem in terms of how people are seeking help, expressing distress. Um, And instead of dealing with the causes and find out ways that they can seek help um, successfully um, uh, from services that are equipped to uh, support them uh, in their crises. Uh, we instead are dealing with, they've already presented in crisis, that we've already missed opportunities to help them at an earlier stage. They've presented in crises to services that should be available to all people um, 24-7. And instead of then being able to receive the help they need through those services, they are instead informed that doing that is wrong, that it's a problem. And the analogy for me that always comes to mind, that well-worn analogy of we're focusing on how we pull people out of the river, not stopping 
them falling in in the first place. And I think it's it's really important when we think about the needs of people who are presenting in this way, how they, they get categorised in lots of very unhelpful ways, but they're generally people who have experienced significant trauma in their lives, as, as Hattie and Hope have, have, have explained earlier. And we need to understand that trauma. Mental health services more recently have talked a lot about trauma-informed practice, and most mental health organisations are talking about how they're implementing trauma-informed uh, practice in some way. And this seems to be the opposite of that. It's the antithesis of being trauma-informed. It is more, as Alex was describing, almost kind of a, a criminal approach to that behaviour which, for which there's no evidence base. And we should only be doing things that have an evidence base to them. In terms of the, the individuals that are being affected by SIM, do we know if there's any sort of theme or commonality in, in terms of the mental health conditions that people will have? I think any of us could answer that question, but I think generally we're talking about people who have a diagnosis of personality disorder, um, emotionally unstable personality disorder, sometimes called borderline personality disorder. But I think those those labels are particularly unhelpful um, because we're not understanding what's behind the help seeking. Um, so just to add on to that, from the information we've obtained through Freedom of Information Requests, um, it does vary between trusts in that there are trusts where um, there are quite a few people who have diagnosis of personality disorders, but there are other areas where there are people under the SIM team or who have been who don't have a personality disorder diagnosis. It might be um, a variety of other mental health conditions. There might be people who have not previously been known to mental health services I think there was an instance of someone who had a diagnosis of childhood autism, as if that just goes away. Um, and yeah, so it is quite um, it's quite a diverse range of people and range of diagnosis um, who end up under the under the model. Thank you, Harry. Alex, I can see you want to come in. Yes. So, in terms of people that have been prosecuted following suicide attempts um, in the last. 10 years or so, you know, in and outside of SIM schemes. It's certainly by no means uh, limited to people that have been considered to have personality disorders. There's been people with obsessive compulsive disorder. There's been people with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, people with intellectual disabilities, people with depression, and of course, you know, alcohol and drug dependence and personality disorders as well. And uh, the concern is that a lot of these are actually treatable conditions and the issue seems to be not just about help seeking or, um, you, you know, the, the, the behaviour of the individuals, but also something about access to services and the, the judgments and decisions that are being made about treatment. That was, that was what I wanted to know, actually, in terms of the appropriate response, a therapeutic response, which Mary has said that SIM is everything other than therapeutic. Um, waiting lists for appropriate services. What are we looking at? You know, if somebody is presenting with a, a very severe mental health need, somebody who would be caught by the SIM model, um, are, are they able to access the services they need in healthcare context? I would suggest that as it has, has been outlined, we're talking about a huge variety of uh, need, huge different forms of diagnosis, um, as, as Alex has just outlined. So I think it's impossible to make a generalisation about what services are and aren't available. The most important thing is that people are aware of how to seek referrals into specialist services. The question then of whether 
the service that they would most benefit from is available for them, I, th- I think is, a, is another question. It's very difficult to generalise, I think. I'm aware that was a wide open question. So, <laughs> um, what, what we've already highlighted is, is that the needs and the um, you know, mental health conditions are very wide indeed. And it is important that any, any treatment is condition specific and need specific as well. And we know that there is there's a great deal of mental health need and there is a great deal of need which is not met by the existing resources of services. So I think it's undoubted that there are um, people that are going to have um, weights or are going to have difficulty accessing appropriate services because we know that there are many other people who who perhaps you know, don't come to the attention of emergency services in the same way who are who are waiting for treatment or who are having difficulty accessing treatment. There's been a fair amount of uh, discourse, even in the media recently, about, you know, call it, you know, an exacerbation of mental health problems across society as a result of lockdown, as a result of um, trauma experienced through the pandemic. Do you anticipate the problem getting worse? I think referrals and certainly demand on services significantly increased over and and since the pandemic. But that's not to say there wasn't significant demand before. I think it's compounded what may have already been quite a significant issue. And I think it's also really important to think about there may be services available, whether enough of the services in the right place at the right time is another matter, though. But there is a risk that as mental health services, we try we expect the person to fit into the service rather than saying, how do we as services meet your needs? So there may be a particular form of psychological therapy, for example, but the person will need to get themselves ready to engage in that psychological therapy. They may have a significant weight for a particular therapy. There may be um, sometimes different therapies are available in different places. There there isn't a consistent uh, delivery of services across the country. It does depend on what's provided in each area. So I think what's really important is saying, yet again, we're saying this is what's available and this is what you need to do to access the service. This is how you need to behave. This is how you need to present. Um, And it really doesn't take into account the fact that people will present seeking help for whatever it is they want to seek help for in their distress in different ways and in ways that they found helpful or to services that they found responsive in the past. And this model in particular was seeking to sort of very much say, we know you're seeking help in a way that makes sense to you. Stop it. Don't do that. Um, And we're not listening to the person. We're again expecting the person to be changing rather than us changing our services or adapting our services to meet their needs. Thank you, Mary. That's incredibly helpful. I want to just come back to a point. It was touched on earlier by Alex. I'm going to come, Alex, to the the Royal College of Psychiatrists statement that was issued on the SIM model back in June last year. And it highlighted that 2021 marked the 60th anniversary of the Suicide Act, England and Wales, and the 55th anniversary of the Criminal Justice Act for Northern Ireland. Those pieces of legislation decriminalised suicide and suicide attempts across the UK. So does does your Royal College take the view that the rollout of the SIM model actually marks a step then backwards towards criminalising suicidality and suicide attempts? I'm, I'm not sure that it's a backward step in terms of an increase or whether the issue is simply that we're becoming more aware of it because I'm I'm not sure that it's something that is new and I'm not sure that it's something that would go away um, 
simply if you know the sim schemes change or are rebranded as something else and part of the challenge is that there doesn't seem to be any central monitoring or central um, reporting because the the alleged offenses that people are charged with are very widely used and, and, and used for other things as well so it's very hard to know how many people across the UK are actually being charged or prosecuted just for those offences when they're associated with um, suicide or self-harm. And what I think we do need to do is ensure that we have a better understanding of this and uh, also a better understanding of the rationale behind these things. Because I, I know that certainly the Royal College of Psychiatrists has never endorsed or issued any guidance about this. I, I, I don't think any of the other healthcare professional associations have either, uh, but I'm not sure whether either the police or the, um, you know, the, the various sort of Crown Prosecution Services have actually guidance around this or whether it's simply done by word of mouth. But in terms of when, when you're saying we don't have a clear understanding necessarily of the number of people being affected, you know, this could affect anybody uh, at any stage in their life, is my understanding right there? Um, well, well, I think it's, um, I think it's kind of, uh, it's kind of difficult to to say anything clear about how many people are actually currently under same, um, just because it's taken us so long, as, just um, as campaigners to to get any kind of um, any kind of uh, information through FOIs or, or or other means, you know, um, to to do with that. But I think um, I think what what is sort of really significant is that um the the in my experience and and sort of our experience as a coalition the sort of wider mental health community um of service users people who identify as kind of um as as sort of having um a mental health condition or a mental illness um who a lot of whom sort of um correspond online um have sort of been sharing in in sort of the last year and a half um since um, since it caught the attention of the service user community, which I think is is how the coalition formed, um, you know, sort of saying that it's it's had a huge impact on the way that they think about using services, the way that they worry about their friends and their loved ones using services, um, you know, kind of because the conditions for, um, are, well, I suppose the sort of conditions that have to be met or, or criteria that are met or, or what whatever it might be, um, to include somebody in the SIM model in a local trust are kind of so inconsistent and so difficult to define. There's also been, you know, the, um, kind of widespread fear about wh- whether or not any particular interaction with any kind of mental health service will um, qualify somebody to be put under SIM. And then, of course, there's the whole thing of, it will con- it, you know, kind of what consent procedures are there um, when SIM is, is kind of put in place for a particular service user and so on. Um, so it's had it's had a huge impact um, that that we've sort of witnessed, um, you know, kind of an, in in the wider service user community. Really, just um, you know, there's there's a lot of fear, um, which I think is is kind of um, rightly placed, really. And we've had no evaluation of any of those types of impacts, as I understand, we haven't had any evaluation of the impacts on service users. I'm guessing there's certainly then been no impact evaluation of the impacts on the wider service user community. And it's, it's incredibly important that that gets flagged up because I just don't think that's recognized by policymakers and people implementing this model. Yeah. So, I mean, part of, part of, um, 
part of the, the what the coalition have been trying to draw attention to. Um, I think it was actually our second statement that we put out in April 2021. Um, is that this this um, the the sim approach has been rolled out without a solid body of evidence, without uh, sort of hardly any evidence really. The only actual evidence that we can find that has been um, that has been sort of carried out, kind of academically um has was in 2019 when it had already been widely rolled out and was in the process of being rolled out even further um and that was um, a feasibility study so it was a study to uh to ascertain whether the model could be studied um so it was kind of a very very preliminary bit of research um and that it 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 didn't contain much detail i think it contained maybe um interviews with with sort of a, a handful of participants maybe under five participants um so it really it there really wasn't much data there at all and it and it outlined sort of how difficult it would be to collect data um from service users um as well and and kind of um you know kind of how how difficult it would be to research as well so the only existing bit of research is really just saying how difficult it would be to collect the evidence so we we find it very frightening that such an approach has been rolled out in the nhs nationally um without a sort of without any sort of solid evidence base behind it um and we did also um we did also uncover evidence um sort of halfway through last year through an foi um, from um, their Hampshire constabulary, um, which suggested that some police officers there um, had actually uh, had actually found evidence to suggest that the data that was being used on the SIM promotional materials was incorrect. Um, so it's not even just that it doesn't have a solid evidence base; it's that there's ev- there's evidence to suggest that the actual promotional materials and the data therein are not reliable either. Um, so the initial pilot study, um, I can't remember the exact year that that was, but um, it was based on eight people, um, but only like a data from six of those people was included. One person was admitted to hospital and another person died. Um, the circumstances of that aren't um, unexplained further. But it's not great research methods, really. Um, and so, yeah, as Hope said, the they're kind of the whole model is built on very poor, on a lack of evidence base, and the evidence that there is is very poor. Thank you, Harry. And I suppose the question that leads me on to we we know that treatment is expensive. So would would you call me a cynic if I were to suggest that the rollout is based on on trying to save money? You know, is it is the idea that this is essentially a method which is being used across 23 mental health trusts, as we've said earlier, um, being driven by financial savings? So, yeah, pretty much. But there's more to that as well. So the main um, benefits that are being outlined as the model are all cost based. So it's a reduction in any admissions or a reduction in um, police call outs and things. Um, but the evidence from the feasibility study showed that actually the cost savings were that the model itself cost more to implement than the equivalent in savings. Okay, tell me a bit more with that. I didn't. I didn't realize that. Tell me a bit more. Um, basically, so the the way it's calculated, um, the cost savings are calculated without factoring in 
the cost of the service itself. And I think a lot of it is about shifting money between purses. So because the NHS is paying for a police officer's salary on an honorary contract, the saving comes to the police. But in terms of overall savings, it's simply that budgets are being shifted between um, police and the NHS. I'm not sure if I've explained that very well. Um, no, that that's really helpful. And But it leads me really well on to my next question. I don't know if you've got my script in front of you, um, Harry, but you know, we often hear um, the narrative from police that they end up too involved in mental health services. But, you know, to me, as an outsider, someone who's only learning about this now, it sounds that SIM works very much towards this scenario. You know, it doesn't remove police from the situation, it embeds police into a mental health response. That's really interesting because I think that there is another side of SIM where there is potentially a, a good idea in it. And that is about the use of small caseload care coordination. So... My understanding is that the SIM police officer usually had a caseload of about eight to ten people, patients. And the average caseload for a community psychiatric nurse or a care coordinator may be around 30 or even 40 patients. So where you have someone who is able to provide that much attention to a small number of individuals and that much support... Um, it is likely that they will have more personalised, more individual care. The question, I think, comes up, why does that need to be a police officer? And actually, could we not have a psychiatric nurse or a social worker or a floating support worker or or someone in healthcare services who has a caseload of just eight to ten people? Um, I just wanted to to pick up that Alex has a really good point there, that isn't to say that there isn't an issue here that we need to acknowledge and explore, which is that police are called out too often to people in a mental health crisis. They are too often the default emergency service where where people should have access to the mental health, appropriately qualified and experienced mental health support when they need it. All too often, it's about the police. And I think most police forces have some quite scary statistics about the proportion of their officers' time that is spent responding to people in a mental health or in a crisis or emotional distress. So there's something there that we need to look at because it shouldn't be the police responding in those circumstances. So it's not to say that there isn't an issue here that we need to look at. It's to say that SIM was not the right answer to that issue. Um, I just wanted to add that um, I I totally agree sort of um, with the point that, you know, um, yes, individualised care, yes, small caseloads, but why does that have to be a police officer's officer's role? Um, I just sort of wanted to add that um, in in the 2019 feasibility study, some of the interviewees were the police officers and they were actually expressed um, significant confusion about why they were involved. Um, So they they were sort of saying um, there was confusion. I I mean, it was a very small interview uh, sample size, obviously, Um, but of the people who were interviewed, there was sort of... um, confusion about kind of what what was the police officer's duty and what was the clinician's duty 
um, and what the role of the police officer was um, as opposed to the clinician. So even within the SIM model, in terms of um, people who've been involved in its implementation, it seems like there is quite a lot of confusion about actually what what the police presence is, is supposed to do. And I think, you know, basically... Um, kind of uh, going off of the promotional materials it is that kind of um that kind of potentially coercive presence um that kind of d- deterrent um of of using emergency services um and so on so from what from what i can see um it's it's actually the police's involved the police's involvement is actually kind of really moving away from um a trauma-informed compassionate approach that i, I think everybody would like to see really I think one of the problems of the SIM model is that it kind of focuses on wanting to stop people using the behaviours that they are, so whether that's kind of suicide attempts, um, self-harm, but there's no, it doesn't make any kind of attempt to address the underlying reasons behind that and why people do the things they do. Everything people do is done for a reason and it serves a purpose, even if it doesn't kind of make sense to an outsider and the thing about the sim model in that it kind of criminalizes and tries to take away the person's coping mechanism without actually addressing any of the underlying issues and we can't generalize and say people with this condition need this it's all about finding out from that person what the behaviors that they're doing actually serves and what purpose that has for them um, and that's something that the sim model doesn't do at all and risks. Um, so, for example, in the pilot study, there was a patient who they felt it was a success because she was not um, she was having fewer contacts with the police. However, she relapsed into a eating disorder, and so in this situation where the underlying needs weren't met, it kind of went from one type of self harm to another and was classed as a success because the new type of self-harm was costing the police less money, but was just as damaging and harmful for the individual patient. And I guess, I mean, Harry, you're not going to meet someone's needs if you don't understand what those needs are. No, not at all. And the question, the question off the back that I want to ask you is, was there any element of co-production, co-design in the development of the model? I think there was sort of attempts at claiming that there was uh one of the things about the term co-production is that it's quite thrown around if you notice that it does it gets used quite a lot yeah people like to say oh it's you know co-produced but there isn't a kind of um there isn't always an expl- an explanation of like what that actually refers to um and i think it's difficult because i don't want to say too much about like referring to an individual but a lot of the co-production in the model was based on the individual who set it up's personal experience, which was, you know, the experience of one person um, and wasn't representative of the needs of a broad group. Hadi, could I push you a little bit? Could you tell me what you think meaningful co-production would look like in this, in, in an example where you're developing a service um, to meet a mental health need? I mean, it's kind of in the name that it needs to be co-produced in that everybody sat around the table and its voice needs to be kind of valued equally. So it's not enough just to, um, you know, 
to get one person with lived experience to provide a bit of feedback and then for you to ignore that feedback largely and say, ah, we've co-produced it because we had input from this person. It's about making sure that it is produced collaboratively with um yeah, with everybody's voice being valued and honoured as equal. I think that's really helpful, though, because it's not just about every voice being heard. It's about every voice being valued and, like you said, honoured as equal. And that is central to actually doing proper co-production. And acknowledging the power in the situation in that often models will claim to be co-produced, but the um, people with lived experience are volunteers or, you know, they're, and so there's often a kind of power there as well where people's co-production and their input is not valued adequately, which leads to it being pretty like exploitative. Um, and I think it's it's really important to say, other than co-production is thing is something that is it's a term that's thrown around willy-nilly these days. Whereas actually what we might be talking about is, oh, we had a service user in the room at some point. But I think if we're talking about genuine co-production, what you need is a service user or service users involved on a professional level. So we pay them for their time um, at the point where we're agreeing what the problem is that we're trying to fix. Whereas it does feel as if on this occasion there was a perceived problem, which is that emergency services are used spending too much time supporting people in mental health crisis and we need to reduce it or stop it. Um, whereas is that the problem or is the problem that people in a mental health crisis don't have a mental health service they can approach in times of crisis? So how you frame that problem is really important before you then start agreeing what the appropriate solution is. Uh, I think I just wanted to add um, that I, I think I think Sim um, has has a, a very, a very, um, very fragile claim to co-production in terms of the cri- the care plans or the or the crisis plans. I can't remember what the the promotional materials actually called them, but the written sort of um sort of agreement between service user, clinician, and police officer, um, or between the service user and their and their sim team, um, you know, kind of um, I I've I have no experience of personal experience of sim, so I don't know what this what these would look like, but I think um sort of um sort of as a coalition we were kind of very pessimistic about what that whether that could ever be proper co-production because the police officer's presence is designed to be coercive so we you know we we kind of um we think it's it's kind of quite a quite a shallow claim especially from sort of um some of the sort of personal testimonies that we've sort of received um as as campaigners as well um we really don't think that that's you know, we we really don't think that that's been thought through properly at all, um, or and it doesn't sort of involve the kind of compassion or or equal value um, that Hattie and and Mary were talking about um, that would characterise co-production. Just to add those, um, I think it's the care and response plans. They claim that they're co-produced with the patient. However, if the patient doesn't agree to the plan, it will be written anyway. Um, and that is coercive and um, isn't meaningful co-production in any sense. Thank you, Harry. Now, I have a question that's been kind of nagging at me uh, since near the start of the conversation. And I don't know now if this is a silly question to ask, but I'm an outsider to this as an issue. Um, 
As an outsider, I can't imagine a scenario in which it could be helpful to prosecute or threaten to prosecute an individual experiencing a mental health emergency. But can somebody set me straight if uh, if I'm being naive in that assumption? So to, to answer this question, we, we don't need to look just at theoretical basis, but we can look at um, something of the evidence there. And the evidence comes from not you know, large research studies, but does come from reports about individual cases and the outcomes from individual cases. And um, certainly I've started a a scoping review to try and look at this more systematically and actually try and summarise the existing evidence. But I'll tell you where we're at so far. So we know that some people who have been um, arrested, remanded, charged or or threatened with arrest um, for help seeking or, you know, for trying to, um, you know, kill themselves, um, have gone on to die by suicide. Um, We know that others have ended up suffering permanent physical harm as following the threats or following attempts at prosecution. Um, In one case, we know that um, a a person who was prosecuted was a victim of contemporary institutional abuse perpetrated by crisis mental health staff who were the ones who encouraged the police to actually go through with the prosecution. Um, We also know that prosecution results in lasting psychological injury and we know that there are a whole series of social harms and um, issues related to dignity which arise from um, contact with the criminal justice system. So we know about all these harms. As far as I've found so far, there is no evidence of benefit or improved clinical outcomes which follow from using the criminal justice system as an intervention in terms of either imprisonment or the threat of imprisonment for self-harm or suicidality. So I think you're right that I've, I've certainly not come across a situation in which there has been a report of improved outcomes following prosecution or threatened prosecution. Thank you, Alex. I'm glad I was on the right side of that. Um, so uh, I have a question for Mary, and this is uh, something we talk about all the time in social work, Mary. Social work is a human rights-based profession. The Human Rights Act is being reviewed currently by government, and just something that people should be aware of. Get involved in the consultation that we're doing on that. Coming back to this topic, though, we're a human rights-based profession, um, and Basel's statement in support of the Stop Sim Coalition highlights a series of ethical and human rights considerations concerning the Sim model. Could you uh, touch on some of those, uh, Mary? And I'm also really keen to know what um, does Basel advise a social worker to do if they are operating in a in an area where Sim is 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 being employed? Okay, Andy. I think firstly, social work describes itself as a rights based profession. In our practice, we are duty-bound by our code of conduct to look at the the rights of individuals. There are a number of legal frameworks that we can look to use to ensure that people can access the the help and support they need in the right place at the right time. So the Mental Health Act clearly is is there, um, which gives people rights as well as, as responsibilities and duties on professionals. So there's a section of the Mental Health Act called Section 136 of the Mental Health Act, which is a power that police um, officers have had since the Act came in. Current Act dates back to 1983, um, where if someone is in need of immediate, the language used is care or control, they can be taken to a place of safety where their mental health needs can be assessed. And the outcome of that assessment 
could be anything from detention under the Mental Health Act to admission to a mental health unit for treatment to supporting the community to actually someone's crisis has resolved and, and they can be uh, released from, from the Section 136 holding power. But those the individuals have rights along with the, the powers that the professionals have. And as social workers, we are also responsible for upholding and promoting human dignity and well-being. And, and there's nothing about the SIM model to me that is about upholding and promoting human dignity and well-being. It's about saying, we want you to stop doing that because it's inconvenient for us. It's not, we don't think it's right that you do that, so stop it. Um, and also respecting the right to self-determination. So if someone is saying, when I'm in a mental health crisis, either this is what works for me and I want to keep doing it and it's a health service and I should have equitable access to it, or I would much rather seek help in a different way, but that's not available to me, then we're asking them to, to stop seeking help at all. So that's not about self-determination. And promoting the right to participation. So we've talked about involvement, we've talked about co-production and to what extent SIM was ever co-produced um, and about agreeing what the problem is to start with or even if there is a problem to start with. And when we're also talking about treating the whole person as a whole, so when we shouldn't just be looking at the person as you're someone who presents in a mental health crisis on in theory, a regular basis. I don't know how frequent um, someone presenting um, would need to be. Uh, but are we looking at the context in which they're living? Are we looking at their home circumstances? Are we supporting them with their relationships? Are we seeing what's going on that may be contributing to the mental health crisis for which they're seeking help? And are we identifying and developing their strengths? Are we supporting them about things that they can do? Now, these are things that as mental health social workers, we should be doing. They're implicitly part of our practice. Um, and what concerned us at Basra about the model was, again, I'm not talking about, it's the antithesis of this. It is about looking in a, in a very oppressive way um, to a problem that is perceived to be a problem by some. When we talk about pressures, for example, on A&E services or police or about ambulance services, about nine, the blue light 999 services and perceptions that they're being overused by some people. Therefore, we look to stop that overuse. We're not exploring what's causing people to present in those ways. We're not seeking to understand. We're not really seeking them to support them in other ways. Now, we, we talked earlier about police officers having relatively small caseloads in compared in this model compared to wider community mental health services. So why wouldn't a solution to this issue be let's give appropriately qualified and experienced mental health professionals a smaller caseload and be able to them to do this quite intensive therapeutic work, understanding why people are presenting in a crisis in the first place? So this is kind of drawing on what you just said, Mary, but going back to um, Alex's point. So I think the, um, it sounds interesting, the evidence and data that's being gathered, but I guess it kind of, um, yeah, gathered about whether there's any, re um, any situation where somebody should be, um, criminalised and you kind of identify that there isn't any evidence to suggest that that's 
beneficial. But I guess the question comes back to what if we found that there was evidence to suggest that it was beneficial in reducing suicide attempts? Should we do that anyway? Because, you know, it comes back to human rights and dignity. And I think that the the question is quite easily answered at face value. And no, people who are unwell do not deserve to be criminalised because, you know, that's that's not how our health service should work. Um, people deserve care and compassion not to be criminalised, no matter what the outcomes of that might be. There's no dignity in that. I, I quite agree. And I'm also aware that there is a long history, not only in the UK, but in many countries around the world, of seeing people with who, who have attempted suicide or who have self-harmed as deserving punishment rather than deserving care. And if you go back over, you know, 100 years in this country, um, people were routinely prosecuted, you know, incarcerated, punished, rather than being offered care. And things have changed and society's attitude has changed. But I think that what we're seeing does reflect continued attitudes within psychiatry, sorry, within society and indeed perhaps within some parts of the psychiatry profession. And so what the challenge, I think, is not just in, you know, you or I or anybody else saying we're concerned that this should not be done or this is harmful, but actually ensuring that that's communicated and that is accepted by by us as a society and by and by us as the different professions and by all the people involved who may influence that. And that, I think, is quite a challenging topic to engage people with. And I think it's also it can also be challenging for individual professions, um, for people from individual professions who find themselves working within a service that adopts a SIM model or a model similar to SIM. Not all of them were badged as SIM, but some had a similar model of, of working with police officers. But at what point do you question, is this the right thing to do? Am I comfortable working in this way? You know, I was working in a mental health crisis team and now I'm doing this role. Um, And you can draw assumptions that, well, it must be okay. There must be an evidence base to it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. And it is around saying we should have professionals who feel empowered enough to be able to say, I'm not sure about this. And remind me again what the evidence base is. I think all all mental health professions, whichever they are, will require um, staff to be working with an evidence base in mind. And I think from a social work professional perspective, clearly we would support our um, staff members to be saying, is it okay?" If they don't get anywhere with that within their individual organisations, it is around going back to their professional association, say in my case, BASWA, um, and say, and get advice from one of the professional officers to say, I've, I'm working in a service and I'm not sure that it's in accordance with our code of conduct and code of ethics. I'm not sure that it's in alignment with our professional values. As social workers, our professional key professional values are anti-discriminatory and anti-oppressive practice. And for me, SIM is indicative of both discrimination and oppression. 
So it is, for me, it's problematic for social workers to be working within this kind of model. Thanks so much, guys. We're coming close to time, but look, I want to give Alex um, a last word and then I'm going to come back to Harry and Hope. So Alex, um, final thoughts? Yeah, so I just wanted to pick up on uh, Mary's comment about people believing in the the model or adopting particular models, because again, as, as we um, started, or as we opened with, while this model may have highlighted and crystallised uh, concerns about practicing mental health services, it's by no means the only model or, or the only practice in, in which there are concerns about practices. And I'll give another example is the the use of preemptive exclusion care plans where people have a, a care plan recorded on their records which says if this person attends the emergency department or is uh, you know encounters the police or ambulance service they should not be seen by anyone from mental health services and that i understand is still accepted and still practiced in some parts of the uk i think we can be clear that there is no evidence of benefit and there is significant concern that excluding people from emergency mental health and indeed emergency medical care can be very harmful and very dangerous but it's still practiced and part of the reason that we do need to go back to the evidence and and think about evidence base is that some of these practices did arise from beliefs in um, theories such as behavior modification theory which frame self-harm suicidality as a behavior which could be rewarded by providing care or provided attention and you know conversely according to the theory could be extinguished by um, delivering punishment or delivering a, a sort of indifference or absence of response and I think that we need to be clear that all those those theories have been talked about and have been discussed within mental health services research there is no evidence to actually support their validity and indeed the opposite is true so i think we do need to actually confront and address these types of concerns not only within the sim scheme but more widely within psychiatric practice and actually you know discuss and evaluate is there any evidence to support them and if not then we really need to stop Thank you, Alex. Um, now, for listeners who want to find out more, I'm going to put up the RC Psych and the BASWA um, England Mental Health uh, Special Interest Group statements on SIM in the show notes so people can access them and find out some more. Harry and Hope, in terms of your work with uh, Stop SIM Coalition, I want to just give you the last word to explain where you're at now and what people can do if they want to get involved. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to add another thing that um, was kind of following on from... Mary was saying about um, kind of what professionals should do if they are working in one of these services and things is that sure go ahead a lot of people have asked us why the model was able to carry on for so long without anybody raising concerns and I think um, a lot of that boils down to how sim doesn't differ hugely from other practices as Alex said and that it wasn't identified as a concern because it wasn't any different from um, the kind of, it came from the toxic cultures within services. And that is how it was allowed to flourish and thrive basically because people didn't feel that it was a concern. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember 
um, considering like the history of this campaign is that the concerns were raised by service users initially and it took the development of the Stop Sim Coalition and the work that we did to highlight these concerns that came significantly before um, any other support. And I think that it is important to consider that history um, and to consider that it wasn't the professionals who raised um, concerns about this. It took um, a group of, of people with our own experience to highlight that concern. Um, yeah, and then just to say how the campaign's going now, um, it's difficult to say exactly, but a good number of places have stopped using SIM now. Um, although it's kind of difficult to gauge because a lot of places seem to have maybe said that they've stopped, but seem to still be using it under a different name. Um, but we're currently working with NHS England to um, work towards, um, yeah, carrying on working towards our primary aim, which has been from the very beginning to stop SIM and any similar models using different names and to yeah, make sure that any people who are under the models are safe and have alternative treatment that is ethical, that isn't in breach of their human rights and meets their needs. Thank you, Harry. And if people want to find out more at stopsim.co.uk? Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me, Harry, Hope, and Mary, Alex. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me in the podcast. 